And usually, as I've said many times, anytime a biblical author writes something, they have to choose what they're writing. They choose what they're wanting to tell you. But they leave a lot of stuff out. They have to. Um, and a lot of times... When you see like Thessalonica next to Berea, here it geographically works, but I think oftentimes the, the author wants you to compare and contrast. Uh, look, at, look at the reception in Thessalonica for Paul and his entourage. Look at the reception in Thessalonica uh, uh, and compare it to his reception in Berea. So with that, look at verse 1, chapter 17. Now when they... When they had passed through Amphipolis, Apollonia, and notice they passed through that. Uh, they came to Thessalonica. Uh, if you stop reading right there, because in the next phrase he's giving you the answer, you know, but if you look at that and say, wonder why he did not stop in Amphipolis or Apollonia, uh, what's, what's the best educated guess? No what? No synagogue. And you get that in the next phrase. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Um, Theologically, Paul says the gospel goes first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. But you see him practicing that way also. He, He always tried to start out in the Jewish community because when he starts out in the Jewish community, as we've said several times, they're about two-thirds of the way to Jesus. They've been looking for their Messiah. They have the scriptures that we have, the Old Testament. So you start in the synagogue. You've got, um, you've got people there that already know the story. They know the basics. They know the, the view of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know the prophecies of the coming of Messiah. So that's a good place to start. And also, in those synagogues, you'll see it here again, in those synagogues, you found Jewish folk, and you found God-fearers, those non-Jews, those Gentiles, uh, usually Greeks, that attached themselves to synagogues and worshipped with the Jews because they loved the Jews, the Jews' morality, their ethics, uh, their, their, their view of a, of a holy God, a transcendent God. Uh, There's a lot that attracted them, but they didn't fully convert to the Jewish faith for several obvious reasons. So here we come to Thessalonica where there's a synagogue. Uh, Thessalonica is uh, the capital of that northern area. It was the capital of that northern area of Macedonia. Probably even when Paul visited, had a 200,000 people, which was a, a massive city for the ancient world. Good-sized city for the modern world, but for the ancient world, a massive city. It's a port city. Um, you, you, we know a lot. We know a lot about the church in Thessalonica because we have this text in Acts where Paul plants the church in Thessalonica. But you also have what else? First and Second Thessalonians, two letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote to this church, wrote back to this church. Obviously, he writes his letters after he leaves a place. Uh, after Paul finally gets to Corinth. He writes two letters, at least, we have them, two letters back to the church at Thessalonica. So we learn about this church from both those letters and from what we read here in Acts. But it's a major city. Uh, being a port city, a lot of people pass through there. So Paul could stay put for a little while and do the work of evangelism. Uh, look at verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, as was his custom, 
That's the way he did this. And on three Sabbath days, um, three Sabbath days, you can say two weeks, three weekends. So on three Sabbath days, he reasoned. Now watch what Paul does. Notice New Testament preaching. Notice New Testament proclamation. We've gotten a whole lot more creative since the New Testament. I'm not sure it was an advancement. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. The Greek word is uh, uh, the word from which we get the word dialogue, actually, in the English. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from um, the New York Times or Sports Illustrated. Um, I had one... Well, I can't say it that way. You'll figure out who it is. I know a pastor that after about three years, I got so tired of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts. I'd heard so much about Charlie Brown and Peanuts. Uh, nothing wrong with that. We need illustrations. When John Wesley published, had his sermons published, and if you read his sermons, you see this, he, he exited out. He exercised out. He cut out all the illustrations. Uh, that's why when you read Wesley's sermons today, you think, well, it's just Bible after Bible after Bible. And that's what Wesley wanted you to read, um, Bible with his commentary on the Bible. But he did use some illustrations, but he didn't think they were worth even taking the ink to publish them. So again, uh, preaching has changed over the last 2,000 years. I don't know this advanced. Paul is reasoning, making his case from the Scriptures, and again, the only scriptures the New Testament had was what we call what? The Old Testament. Yeah, Paul, Paul's writing the New Testament, as is Luke and Matthew and Mark. They don't have the New Testament yet. Uh, they've got their experience with Christ. They have the scriptures, the Old Testament. They're in the process of writing what we'll call the New Testament. So he's using the Hebrew scriptures to reason, verse 3, explaining and proving, and here's the issue for the Jewish community, explaining and proving that it was necessary, absolutely necessary for the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Uh, he, said he had to argue with the Jews, convince the Jews it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. Now, why does he have to do that? There was really no concept, there is no concept in Judaism that the Messiah would suffer and die. You know, there's a lot in the Hebrew Bible. The Messiah will come, set up the Messianic kingdom, restore the glory of Israel, restore the, restore the glory of the Davidic kingdom, uh, bring peace and harmony to the land, uh, help, help the world experience the glory of God. So there's a lot about the Messianic kingdom. There's a lot about Messiah. And the Jewish community is still waiting on that. What they had no expectation of was Messiah would come and die. Um, so that's why in, in, in the Jewish community of Jesus' day, about the best they could do was, okay, he thought he was Messiah. Some of us thought he was Messiah, but he failed. He died. He was executed by the Roman state. Um, so there was no concept. Paul's going to show them from their Bible where it's there. 
but there was no generally recognized concept that because that looks like a failed messiah so the early jewish community at best they thought he was a false at best a failed messiah at worst a false messiah because you know they say well he's messiah where is the kingdom where is the messianic kingdom the romans are still in town Hamas is still coming after Israel. You, you, you know that, so you, you don't, they don't know how to separate the Messiah from the Messianic kingdom. Um, but we Christians, because of our experience with Jesus, we say he is the Messiah, and yeah, guess what? He had to die. And a little hard for him to accept is he had to be raised from the dead. So notice what he's preaching here, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying this Jesus, this Nazarene preacher from Galilee that was crucified as a criminal, executed by the state, capital punishment, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Um, now, wouldn't you have loved to heard that Bible study? Uh, you know, now because we see how the New Testament uses the Old Testament to preach Jesus and all that they preached about Jesus, they used the Old Testament. So, um, you know, I would love to think in the Christian community, Christians know that part of their Bible as much as they know the Second Testament, the Christian Bible. And you can, we, you know, we could, we could survey Christians and say, wonder which text Paul went to. Um, I won't put you on the spot, but obviously the text you hear, every, most of us hear, every year during Holy Week, Isaiah 53. You know, the suff you got four, four what we have term termed suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Now, the Jewish community to this day will look at those four suffering servant songs, such as Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. You know that text we read every, every year during Holy Week. Uh, they look at that and they say, they, they think the servant that's being displayed there uh, is Israel, the people, suffering. And there's a lot of historical warrant and present-day warrant for that one. Uh, that's, that's, that they see that. Um, we look at that and we say, well, it could be Israel, but it's also the, the Messiah, the person of the Messiah who was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, but he came and sought us. So, you know, if, 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 if somebody had taken notes during this Bible study from Paul, probably what we would call Isaiah 53, uh, Psalm 16, where uh, the psalmist says, God will not allow His Holy One to see corruption, you know, to die and decay. So the early Christian community, and, and you see them being used throughout the New Testament. Uh, usually when they're used in the New Testament, they're kind of set apart as like poetry. Sometimes they're italicized. Most of your English translations try to make it obvious how in the, how in the New Testament they use the Old Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are 60 quotations from the Old Testament, because that was the only Bible the early Christian community had. So here's Paul doing what he had to do, explain and prove that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he says, this is Jesus. So that's Christian preaching uh, in its purest form. I know there's a lot that passes for Christian preaching today. There's some Christian preaching I listened to a sermon recently. I, I try to listen to a lot of sermons. That's part of the beauty of the modern technological age. And you run across some wonderful sermons. They're all good in a certain way. 
But somebody needs to explain to Christian preachers your calling is not to be a stand-up comic. Your calling is not to be an after-dinner speaker. Your calling is not to be Garrison Keeler and storyteller. I mean, none of those things are bad, and you can use them if you really use them to support the truths of the gospel. But I, I think I've told you one time, I said when I was this superintendent, I sat through one, I sat through one sermon with one of my pastors, and my wife was sitting in the pew beside me, and I and I I, I, I kept watching her. She was counting, you know, one, 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 two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm watching. I'm like, what are you doing? She was that one sermon had thirteen stories in it. And she knew I was going to fuss about that when I walked out. So she was keeping track of how many stories. I mean, I felt like the preacher was a cross between Garrison Keeler and Andy Griffith up there. I mean, I mean, and that was fine. Bring him in as an after-dinner speaker. But preaching, Christian preaching, that's a very specific thing. It's not entertainment from the pulpit. Um, it's a very specific thing. We see there are sermons throughout the book of Acts like this one. He's explaining and he's proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. He's doing that from their scriptures. Anyway, keep going now. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Notice again, it doesn't say some of them were entertained by Paul's sermon. You know, uh, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, that's the God-fearers, the Gentiles are hanging out in synagogues, and not a few of the leading women. That's a biblical way of saying a lot of women. Not a few, but a lot of women uh, joined the early Christian movement here in Thessalonica. There are some manuscripts that say a lot of the leading, a lot of the wives of leading men in Thessalonica, but whatever, they're leading women, and uh, they, they, they signed on to what Paul was offering. But then look what happens. Uh, Paul, everywhere he went, this is a cliche, but it's true. Everywhere he went, he either created a revival or a riot, sometimes both. Here was both. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Remember all the issues that he ran into in Philippi with the Jewish community. You notice it says he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths because the Jews said, we're tired of you, Paul, get out of here. Now, what we also know, because we have 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, is he was in Thessalonica uh, more than two weeks, three weekends. Uh, he was there for a substantial period of time. If you read 1st Thessalonians, particularly 1st Thessalonians, but you can find it in 2nd Thessalonians, he was there for a while uh, because it, you also read in 1st, 2nd Thessalonians that he not only spent some time with the Jews, he spent a lot of time with people who, because of his preaching, gave up their idolatry. Well, he's not talking about Jews at that point. He's talking about the, the Greeks there. So he was there for a while. But anyway, here come, you know, the, the Jews get jealous. They're, you know, they're getting jealous because they're losing their power. They're losing their power and their control over all the people because some are, are, are listening to Paul. You know, if you want to run across some of the meanest people on planet Earth, is take some power and influence away from religious people and see what happens. Anyway, that's what's happening here. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Here's one of your riots. They formed a mob 
and they set the city in an uproar. And watch this. And they attacked the house of Jason. Poor Jason. Where's Jason? Where'd he come from? Um, well, we're figuring Jason was the person who was um, giving hospitality to Paul and his entourage. One of the reasons I really like this, you probably don't know much about Jason. We don't know anything about Jason except he had a really bad day. Um, and he evidently had some money. You're going to see that in a moment. But Jason is one of those millions and millions and millions of unsung heroes who support the preaching of the gospel, who support the work of Christ from behind the scenes. A lot of those unsung heroes are sitting here in this room right now. So when I think about Jason, I think about um, the multitudes and multitudes that support the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the spread of the kingdom. And they do it... Um, I'm sure, I'm sure Jason would prefer his name not be in your New Testament because you see what happens. Um, they drag Jason and some of the brothers, some Christians, before city authorities saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them. He's showing hospitality. Hospitality is a Christian virtue. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another Jesus, another, another king, Jesus. Um, yes, I love that phrase. They're turning the world upside down. That's our call, turn the world upside down. Now, the interesting thing is the world does not know this, but we know this. We're actually turning the world right side up. But because the world's already upside down, when we turn the world right side up, they feel like we're turning the world upside down. So they come at us. Um, you know, if, if you haven't learned yet that God and the work of God and the gospel and the spread of the gospel creates disruption um, in your life and in the society around us, yeah, you've been, you, you're, you're way too isolated. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that God does for us individually is disrupts our life interrupts our life, bothers us, shows up. Anytime God shows up, things cannot stay the same. And, you know, a lot of times our prevailing passion in life is for things to stay the same. No change. But, so it doesn't take a lot of change before all of a sudden we're being hauled before uh, the tribunal and, and the crowd saying we're turning the world upside down. You know, for some people, it's just losing their seat in church on Sunday morning. You know, the world's been turned upside down for them. Well, yeah, the, the point of the spread of the gospel is to right-wise the world around us. And it feels like the world's being turned upside down to the world around us. So, um, yeah, they're, they're disrupting the, the harmony and the unity and the peacefulness of the city of Thessalonica. So they haul some Christians and Jason uh, before, the, before the magistrates. The word city authorities there is politarch which is a very unique, specific Greek word meaning city authorities there in verse, uh, verse 5, verse 6. Uh, that's important because it shows you how good of a historian Luke is. Luke was a medical doctor. He was brilliant, but he was a good historian. He's the author of the book of Acts. So he uses that technical term there, polytarchs. Uh, he, so Jason and the brothers are brought before polytarch. The accusation is they're turning the world upside down. And the accusation, because the polytarchs, the, the Roman rulers there in Thessalonica, 
could not have cared, cared less about Jewish religious squabbles. But if you say treason, you know, just like the Jewish community, their thing they hated most was blasphemy against God. That's what they went after Jesus about. Um, the Romans, it was treason. So here, yeah, they're turning the world upside down. They are acting against the decrees or the laws of Caesar. And they're saying there is another king besides Caesar. And this king's name is Jesus. Well, we do believe there's another king. You know, the good days are when what our king wants out of us doesn't contradict what earthly kings want out, out of us. But there comes time. Uh, in life where what our king wants, King Jesus wants, and what the kings around us want diverge, and we have to make a decision. Uh, so you see the accusation, treason, treason. You know, they're saying, um, and by the way, the Jews did the exact same thing uh, before Pontius Pilate. If you don't do something about this Jesus, we're going to tell Caesar that you're harboring a traitor, you're harboring treason, you're letting there be a message go out that there's somebody who has greater power and more authority than Caesar. Yeah, and the political realm doesn't like it when we take away their power either, even more than the religious realm likes it when we take away their power. So um, that was the accusation. You're messing things up and you're treasonous. Verse 8, And the people and the city authorities, politarchs, were disturbed when they heard these things. Because again, the last thing they want is for Rome to come down hard on their city because they're harboring uh, uh, traitors. Uh, look at verse 9. This is where we know Jason has some money. Well, he has to have a large enough house. He's hosting Paul, Paul and his entourage. But look at verse 9. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Uh, what we think's going on there is um, uh, the, the, the political authorities, the politarchs, the city authorities, said to Jason, you give us a bond. And, um, you know, um, as long as these troublemakers get out of town, you know, you may eventually get your bond back, Jason. But if they come back, if they don't leave, uh, you're going to lose your bond. So, uh, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest... Uh, they, some others may have helped pay. They let them go. So, um, yeah, here's Jason. He's providing hospitality. He's providing support. Here he's providing money to help with the spread of the gospel. Um, those kind of people like Jason really do more for the spread of the gospel than people like me who get to talk in front of groups. It's the people behind the scenes who, because of their generosity and their faithfulness, their conviction to Christ, are doing the things that the world may think is minor uh, to, to support the proclamation of the gospel. Giving a room to the traveling missionaries, evangelists, putting up money as a bond uh, to, get, to, to, to let them go free from Thessalonica. So I like Jason. Uh, if you, if you, you know, when you have a lot of time on your hands, write your fictionalized account of Jason. And you can make him into whatever you want to make him into. I wonder how the story ends. Uh, by the way, of course, in Christian tradition, because we, we have very imaginative minds, in Christian traditions, uh, this Jason became one of the first bishops of the church at Thessalonica. So you can write your fictionalized accounts and figure out what you think happened with Jason after Paul and his entourage left. So where do they go to? Um, 
they're going to go to Berea. It's about 20 miles or so, 20, 25 miles. Um, verse 10, and then we'll, we'll wrap up after we finish with them in Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas. Evidently, Timothy's left. Maybe he's still at Philippi, maybe he stays here. Anyway, but the brothers immediately sent, Christian brothers, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, getting, getting, him out of, getting them out of town, to Berea. And when they went into the Jewish synagogue, uh, again, into the Jewish synagogue, you see where he goes first. For those of you um, that were with me in Greece um, in April, I'm sure you probably remember Berea. Uh, that, just, that was that quick stop in front of a monument or a memorial that shows the ministry of Paul and Silas. Um, what I, I think I've mentioned too. What I, what I remember, it was great. I always liked stopping Berea. It's about a 20-minute stop. Good photo op. But while we were at the monument, remember there was a Roman Catholics having mass over there to our right. Poor Catholics, I'm sure they couldn't hear the priest because of all of, all of us exuberant Protestants there right beside them. Um, but uh, that was Berea, if you... If, if all that trip is blurring together in your mind, that was Berea. It's, it's a small but vibrant little city today. And of course, they go to the Jewish synagogue. So again, there's a Jewish presence. Again, after, after the Assyrians, the Babylonians took Samaria and then took Jerusalem in the 700s before Christ and the 500s before Christ, since that time, even during the time of Jesus, there were more Jews living outside the Holy Land than living in the Holy Land. And that's been, their, um, that's been their history for 2,500 years. That's why they wanted a homeland, because the last 2,500 years have not gone well for them wherever they lived. So that's why at the end of the 1800s, uh, and then it sort of happened in 1948, they were given a homeland again. They were without a homeland for 2,500 years. Because uh, during all this history, uh, if you had been in the Holy Land, they were being ruled by somebody else. There's, had, they've been, there's been a very short period when they were actually in the Holy Land and had self-rule in the Holy Land. Here they're in the Holy Land, um, well, here they're in Greece, but there's still Jews in the Holy Land and they're being ruled by Rome. But that's why almost everywhere Paul could go in the ancient world, um, there were Jews because they were scattered. That's the diaspora, they were scattered. Uh, about the only, the only other time I kind of use that, I hear that word used, for a, a group of people, it is my ancestors, the Scottish, the Scottish diaspora. We left Scotland, went to Ireland, then we came to the United States and flooded the United States. So you're, you'll hear about the Scottish diaspora. There's more people of Scottish descent outside of Scotland than inside Scotland today. Well, the Jews are that way. So about anywhere Paul went, uh, you, you find a Jewish community. That's why if you go to Rome, and I encourage this, it's fascinating. If you go to Rome... Um, and you get off the typical tourist trail, go to the synagogue in Rome. It's a beautiful building with an absolutely amazing history, a wonderful museum, um, high security fence all the way around it, uh, because the Jewish community in Rome is the longest continuous Jewish community in the world. Because again, they were there in Jesus' day. They were there in Paul's day in Rome. And uh, while um, Jews have come and gone in a lot of other places, you go to Rome, they're very proud. The Jewish community there is very, very proud of the fact that they're the oldest continuously in existence uh, synagogue Jewish community there. 
So, um, yeah, the Jewish diaspora, everywhere Paul goes, except in some places, he couldn't find a synagogue in Philippi, so he found, he found the ten women down by the, by, by the river. But usually he, he looked for synagogues. If there was not one in Amphipolis, Apollonia, that he found one in the larger city of Thessalonica. They're scattered all over the ancient world, just like they're scattered all over the world today. So they go to Berea, they go to the Jewish synagogue. Now, take note of the Bereans. Take note of the Bereans. You know, I often think about church names. Like I've always wondered why a church would name itself Corinth or Sardis. You know, when churches name themselves that, I wonder if they've read the book here. Corinth and Sardis are not names that you... It's fascinating. If you, it's kind of like naming, you know, your son Lucifer or Nimrod or something. Um, read the story before you just yank a name out of the Bible. But, you know, um, Berean is a good name for a church because I want you to notice how the Bereans are introduced here. Verse 11. Now, these Jews, Luke says, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So look at the word in my English translation. It's noble. It's a rather unique Greek word. Look at your translation there in verse 11. See how the Jews are described. You you can take that Greek word and say something like, they were more fair-minded. They were more open to what Paul had to say. Um, uh, That's what Luke means by noble. They were more noble. These Jews were more noble than those that were just left in Thessalonica. And then here's why the Bereans are loved. They received the word with all eagerness. Some people receive the word till it hits 12 o'clock noon, then the eagerness just stops. But they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures, not just quickly reading them, not just um, glancing at them. They examine the Scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. You've seen examples of Christian preaching. Here's an example of Christian listening. When you listen to sermons, you should be examining the Scriptures daily to see if what that preacher's telling you is so. You know, not whether or not it agrees with the New York Times or Sports Illustrated or the Atlantic, but is it so according to Scriptures? So... I like the Bereans. We all like the Bereans. They receive the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Uh, There's one of your tasks for daily living, examining the scriptures daily. Now, that means a little bit more than reading the little bit of Bible that's in the upper room devotional. You need to examine the scriptures. Uh, Cogitate, meditate, meditate. The word meditate in Hebrew means like a cow chews the cud. You know, chew over the Scriptures. Meditate. And not just your, you know, your favorite 10% of the Bible. Um, take the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Uh, anyway, we love the Bereans. Love the Bereans. But watch what happens. To the, here's the results again. Many of them, therefore, believed what Paul was preaching about who Jesus was. Well, uh, but many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing. Again, the Bible way of saying several Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Paul keeps pointing out women were prominent in the early Christian community. Hmm? In both of these instances, he has definitely pointed out women instead of saying many people. 
What was the role of what was the role of women in the ancient world? I used you to make me a baby, but after that, by the way, that's why in the Greco-Roman world, you know, I, I apologize for being a historian, but in the Greco-Roman world, it was not unusual because sex was recreation. Sex was about pleasure. It was not unusual in the Greco-Roman world for the men, who's way above the women, to use the women to have the babies, to use the women to take care of the home, but to use equal male counterparts for companionship, even in physical ways. Uh, the The only world that has known homosexual behavior more so than ours was the Greco-Roman world. Um, so women were really... Judaism was always better to women than the pagans in most places. So the women were... If you look at Luke's gospel, again, Luke wrote this. If you look at Luke's gospel, compared to Matthew, John, and Mark, one of the things Luke loves to show you is how people on the margins, the outcast, the unlovable, those that were hated played prominent roles in the ministry of Jesus. Like if you, if you didn't even know, but you just know what I said about Luke's gospel, and I said, wonder where, wonder which gospel it is where a thief on the cross professes faith to Jesus. And Jesus responds to a thief on the cross by saying, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And you just want to make an educated guess which gospel that's in, which gospel would you choose? Luke, and you'd be right. You'd be right. Luke loves to show that the early Christian community was made up of wealthy, not wealthy, slaves, free. Um, So that's why every chance Luke gets to show you that um, a, a, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, a slave, comes to faith in Christ, I'm going to show you. He's going to show you that. Um, yeah, women, I'm, I'm still not sure. I mean, in our culture, women are sort of second-class citizens. But in the first century, that's why the gospel points out to people, Chloe, um, um, Junia. Junia is referred to as a fellow apostle, right? Shake your head, yes. If you don't believe me, go read Romans 16. Junia is a female. She's referred, she is referred to by Paul as a fellow apostle. But again, it it occurs in Romans 16, which is where Paul's doing greetings. And it feels a little bit like a genealogy, just names after names after names. So that's not, you know, among people's pet passages of the Bible. He refers to Junia as a fellow apostle, use the female. So women were... um, given much more prominent roles in Christianity, and by the way, they were doing the same in Judaism, than they were, than they were being given in the Greco-Roman world. So that's why Paul likes, I mean, Luke and Paul does the same thing. I mean, Paul wrote a whole, whole letter, a little one, about two Philemon taken up for his escaped slave who took money from Philemon and Paul led him to Christ and sent him back to Philemon and says, Philemon, Onesimus is coming back to you, but he's a brother in Christ now. And I expect you to treat him differently. So the early Christian community was a vibrant, diverse group, much more diverse than um, any of the groups that were existing in Greco-Roman world. And Luke is one of the gospel writers. All of them do it. Uh, Paul does in his letters. They love to show you. Uh, the church in Corinth, 
which is where Paul goes from eventually to Athens and Corinth. When he gets in Corinth, he writes a letter back to the church of Thessalonica. Who's, who's, whose house are they meeting in? Well, in, in, in Corinth, in Chloe's house, which is interesting. In Philippi, whose house was it? Lydia. So these strong, evidently women with some power and wealth. Yeah, they had a prominent role in, in, in the early Christian church. So Luke loves to show you that. That's why every time women come to Christ, he's going to make sure you take note of that. Because that was, they weren't trying to, you know, the, the priests of Zeus weren't going after the women. I mean, women were such second, third, fourth, fifth class citizens. But the gospel took care of that. Took care of that. Again, we offered the sign of the covenant to women, right? Baptism. Even in the Jewish community, they do not offer the sign of the covenant to women, right? Because the sign of the covenant is what? Circumcision. Uh, you didn't even have to have a course in biology and know that's not offered to women. But that's why in the Christian community, we, and you hear Paul discussing it in Galatians, we offered the sign of the covenant, baptism, to men and women equally. That was radical. That was turning the world upside down. That was disturbing the world. That was teaching things that uh, were not in accordance with the decrees of Caesar. All that stuff. So yeah, we got in trouble. So that's why Paul, good question. So that's, be sure and notice this. A lot of times we read the Bible with 21st century eyes. Try to read it with 1st century eyes. And say, why is women, why are women mentioned all over the place? Well, that's the reason. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing. So these are not just the run-of-your-mill Greek women. These are Greek women of high standing, as well as men. You know, Luke's grateful for the men, but he's going to point out the women who came. Anyway, verse 13. Uh, but here it comes. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was, pro was proclaimed by Paul, at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Um, I think it's still popular because I, 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 I've used it before because this is not the first time we've seen this here. Remember the video game Pac-Man? You know, remember it's the ghost who chase Pac-Man around. Now, I recently learned the names of the ghost. And Pac-Man, because my two little granddaughters are going to be those ghosts uh, for Halloween in Pac-Man. So you may not know those those ghosts in Pac-Man that keep chasing Pac-Man around, you know, following Pac-Man, trying to eat Pac-Man. Or um, they're, they're named Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde. Now you weren't expecting to learn that this morning, were you? Those ghosts in Pac-Man have a name. I don't know. I, I just told him not to choose Clyde. Um, but I, when I see how the Jews keep nipping at Paul's heels, I mean, here they leave Thessalonica to go to Berea just to keep nipping at Paul's heels. That's always the image I get is the Pac-Man video game. So here they come. They, they make a journey, great intentionality. They go all the way to Berea. Uh, they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds. So watch, watch what happens. Paul's getting worn down by this point. Paul would have probably stayed and contended. But the people around Paul knows he's getting kind of worn down by, by the conflicts. Verse 14, 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. I guess they're debating the Jews. Um, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which is where we're going to be next week. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they just kind of put, they go down to the sea, and the assumption is he gets in a boat there and goes the whole way by boat uh, down to Athens, which he could have done. Um, so we're going to be at Athens next week. That is a good stopping point. Next week, we ho- hopefully will, f- all the rest of chapter 17 is Paul in Athens. And you'll notice as you read this in anticipation of next week, Paul's work in Athens, even his preaching in Athens, is depicted as being very different from what he did in Thessalonica, Philippi, uh, Berea. Um, His preaching is different. So take note. Take note uh, as to how his preaching differs. Luke is very clear on it. Take note as to how his preaching in Athens is different. Because then you have to ask the question, you know, we appreciate him trying to interact with the culture. That's what makes his preaching different in Athens. He's quoting pagan poets. There's two quotations in the Bible here where Paul quotes pagan poets. So he's trying to interact with the culture there to reach the culture there, the philosophers and and the uh, highly educated people in Athens. So part of us appreciates Paul doing that, but we cannot help but notice he wasn't very successful in establishing a church in Athens. So that's why when we read of his preaching in Athens, we're not quite sure of how we're supposed to take his sermon. Anyway, that's next week. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for this group that you assemble on Wednesday mornings. Grateful that you're working in our lives to help us us grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. God, let your word live in us. Help us to be a people that examine your word. Help us to be a people who don't just read the scriptures, but we search the scriptures. Because we know that there we find truth. And there we hear your voice. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.